0: As you said, my name is uh, Brandon, uh, and happy Mother's Day as well. Uh, We are in a series that we're calling Easter and the Emotions, where we take a look at a few of the natural and the normal human emotions that we live with out of the Psalms in light of Jesus' resurrection. And so week one, we talked fear. Last week, we talked guilt. This week, we're talking anger. And so let's start it out like this. Uh, how many of you have ever said this? Something has happened. You respond, settle down, a moment of clarity, and you just say, "I, I just, I don't know why I got so angry." Okay, good. <laughs> You're looking at one another as if... and I'm <laughs> just kidding. Or, or how about this one? Uh, I, wh- why am I not more upset at this? Right? You having a conversation, or you see something on the news. You see something, somebody says something, and you don't respond with anger, and you just think to yourself, why am, I, why am I not more upset about this? Why did I just change the channel, or why did I just change the subject? Why am I not more upset about this? Most of us in this room, I'm guessing, don't think of ourselves as just innately angry people. Uh, I never thought of myself as angry until I had kids. Now I know that I am. Full disclosure, I have preached many sermons in this room feeling unqualified to do so because of the way that I blew up on my kids that morning. Truth be told, if I wasn't preaching on anger today, today would have been one of them. Which is why I should say, some of us in here know all too well the lasting scars that come from parents that we had to be on eggshells around, from parents that we were afraid to just speak up a little bit afraid the time bomb would just go off. Some of us in this room live with those lasting scars today. And so we know it can be a sensitive topic for some of us, but we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it because it's lurking in all of us. And because of all of the human emotions, I think this one might be the hardest to understand. And it's the one that we most often oversimplify. Treating as if it's only good or only bad. But we all know that anger is far more complex than that. And so here's what we're going to do. Given that very little about it is simple or straightforward, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three things. The complexity of anger, the root of God's anger, and the purpose of anger. So complexity, root, purpose. And we're going to start with complexity. And here's what makes it so complex is that it's both dangerous and good at the same time. That anger can be both dangerous and it can be good at the same time. And both danger and goodness come out of the primary imagery that the Bible uses for anger. And so look at verse 5. Psalm 79, verse 5. How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Now, uh, in this verse, fire is directly linked to jealousy, but in Hebrew poetic language, um, often you'll see, couplet of lines, and there are two words communicating the same idea. So when you read this, think um, jealous anger. Will your jealous anger last forever? Oh God, will your jealous anger burn like fire forever? Why does that matter? Because the primary imagery in the Bible for anger is fire. It's the primary imagery. It's used both of people and of God. And so let me show you a couple of examples. Genesis 39 This is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So Potiphar's wife, um, she has tried to get Joseph to lie with her, to sleep with her. He rejects her. She gets angry. She sets him up. Husband thinks that he made the move on her, and this is how he responds. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His, the husband's, anger was kindled. Kindled, it's literally the Hebrew word to burn. It was set to burn inside of him. He heard what he thought he did to his wife and anger burned within him. Deuteronomy six fifteen. this is of God. For the Lord your God, in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you. Same word again, to burn. Lest the anger of the Lord be set to burn against you. Now, there are plenty of other examples, but there's one that I want you to see, and it's Numbers 11. So, in Numbers 11, the people of Israel are complaining, grumbling about God. This is what it says. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, set to burn. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp, Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of the place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Numbers 11 is a place where the anger of God didn't produce a metaphorical fire, it produced literal fire. Why did I want you to see that? Here's why I wanted you to see that. Because the picture in the Bible is this. Anger is not like something that is dangerous. Anger is literally something that is dangerous. Anger has the power to destroy your life. And anger, like fire, is spontaneous. Anger, like fire, is difficult to contain. Anger, like fire, can destroy almost anything in its path. And there's plenty of research out there on the not just emotional lasting effects of anger in your life, but the physical damaging effects of anger, ongoing anger in your life. It has the power to destroy almost any and every relationship in your life. Very little, very little will destroy a relationship, any kind of relationship, friendship, roommate, spouse, parent, child, Very little will destroy a relationship faster than unresolved anger. Very little. Part of anger's complexity is that it can be relationally cold, emotionally distant. And you say, that's not fire. Well, yeah, the imagery of fire still fits. That is just as damaging and will destroy just as fast. In a relationship, roommate, friend, spouse, parent, child, here's what we often do what we often call a lack of communication, what we often call just kind of missing one another when it comes to communication, is really nothing more than unresolved anger. Not always, not always, often, often it is unresolved anger. And if I could draw out the fire imagery uh, a little more, uh, maybe give a analogy that may be more pertinent to most of us. It certainly is in, uh, in my life. One of the reasons that fire, or, I'm sorry, anger is so dangerous is that it takes a while to burn before it becomes a flame. A few weeks ago, uh, we were grilling at my house. In fact, we had Peter Comont, the guy from Oxford, was in town. We did like a staff elder dinner at the house, and uh, we, were, we were grilling. Started to rain. We brought the ice chest inside. I grabbed the ice chest. I put it up on the stove. Rookie move, I know. Somebody had turned a burner on. And a few minutes later, I'm in the living room talking to somebody, and somebody yells, fire. And I snap my head, turn, and there's flames shooting out from underneath my ice chest. We got it out. The house is still standing. It's fine. But here's the point of that story. that ice chest sat on the stove on that burner heating up for a while. It sat there heating up, melting for a while, just cooking underneath, and we didn't see it until the flames started shooting out. This is how anger often works in our life. Often, it just sort of sits underneath a burner on a stove, heating up, heating up, heating up, heating up, until all of a sudden flames are shooting everywhere and we are consumed by it. This is certainly how it has worked in my life. We usually don't see it until it has consumed us. So the first reason it is so complex is that it is dangerous like fire, but fire can also be good. In Exodus 11, uh, Moses is the leader of Israel. Uh, Israel is in captivity in Egypt, and he is going to the Pharaoh, trying to get him to let the people of Egypt go. And this is what it says, 8 and 9. This is the Pharaoh talking first. Then all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he, this is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, literally burning anger. Then Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, "Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt." So here's the point. Moses saw the people of Israel being treated unjustly, being held in captivity, being held as slaves. And his response was to burn with anger. And at this moment, Moses' heart is a reflection of God's heart. God's heart that saw his people being treated unjustly and burned with anger. That anger is the appropriate response to injustice. It is God's response to injustice. Anger in its most basic form can be an expression of love. If someone is hurting someone that you love, anger is the appropriate response. Why? Because it is somebody that you love. All right, if any of you in this room, if you hurt my wife, verbally or physically, I am going to be angry about it. Why? I love my wife. If any of you broke into my home, physically hurt my wife, I am not going to be indifferent about that. I am not going to have a neutral emotional response. I'm going to be angry. Why? Because I love my wife. In its basic form, Anger can be an expression of love. It's why the biblical picture of anger is not no anger, and it's not explosive anger. It's slow to anger. So the biblical paradigm, the biblical picture when it comes to love is not no anger, and it's not explosive anger. It is slow to anger. It's why 10 times in the Bible, God is described as slow to anger. So I four times in the Proverbs, it says that the wise person, the good and the wise at life is somebody who's marked by being slow to anger and repeatedly the fool is the one who is hot tempered and explosive in their anger. So when you, uh, when you overreact and you just explode on somebody, how do you feel afterwards? You feel foolish. Why? Because you acted like a fool. That's why. You felt foolish afterwards because you acted like a fool. And the Bible is not no anger. God is not indifferent to evil and injustice. He is angry over it. And it's not explosive anger either. Explosive anger is a thoughtless anger. This is a thoughtful, slow-to anger. The complexity of anger is found in the imagery of fire. It can burn you up. It can destroy you. It can destroy every relationship around you. Or or it can be used to destroy evil and injustice and work for good. Fire destroys Anger destroys. The question is, what? This is the complexity of anger. So let's talk about the root of God's anger, and for that, let's pick it up in verse one, 79, Psalm 79, verse one. "O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food." the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around the earth, all around Jerusalem, sorry. And there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. So here's what's going on. Here's the scene that Psalm 79 is set within. In 586 BC, Babylon came in and just destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple uh, ripped the city apart, and then took the people into exile. The picture that gets painted here in these four verses is one of complete devastation, one of utter and absolute devastation. And then in verse 5, their response is, God, will you be angry forever? God, will you stay angry forever? Will your jealous anger burn forever? See, here's what they knew. They knew that what was happening was the result of God's anger being poured out, that this was God's judgments on the people of Israel. Which I need to pause and say, not everything devastating in your life or not everything devastating in the world is the result of God's anger or his judgment. It can be easy to believe that. I remember, um, I don't know, maybe, I think it was our second, I don't think it was our first, I think it was our second miscarriage. I remember the thought entering my mind is this punishment for the way I've lived my life? I know the answer is no, but pain makes you irrational. But I remember thinking, is this punishment? This one, we can look at Numbers 24, 25, and you can see explicitly that this is the result of God's anger being poured out on them. And so for this one, we know that it's because he was angry, so the question becomes, what is it that God was angry about? was angry about the idolatry and the injustice that has made its way into the people of Israel. And so let me explain both idolatry first. Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet, someone who spoke for God and spoke into Israel, into the people of God. And he explains their idolatry like this. He was a contemporary of these events right here. He says that God has formed the nation of Israel. God has pledged himself to be their God. He has pledged faithfulness to them as a husband would pledge faithfulness to his wife. And then this is how they respond, Jeremiah 5, 7. How can I pardon you, God to Israel? How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. So here's the uh, imagery of idolatry the imagery of idolatry that jeremiah uses with israel is that of adultery it's that of adultery it's that you have given yourself to other gods which is akin to you have committed adultery you have committed adultery which if one spouse catches another spouse having an affair jealous anger is the appropriate response Why? You are destroying the relationship. You are breaking the covenant that we have entered into. Jealous anger is the appropriate response. And idolatry in them, as it always does, led to injustice, which is why 21 verses later, in verse 28, it says, they know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. See, so here's where it led in Israel. Idolatry. Idolatry led to injustice. It led to not working for the orphan. It led to not defending the rights of the needy to not working for the fatherless. Which is why often, often in conversation, I'll, I'll hear somebody say like this. I'm just a, a convo with a friend, with a neighbor, somebody um, who says, I just struggle with the idea of, uh, of, of believing in a God who is angry. I, I just cannot believe it. I A God of wrath, a God of anger, I just do not buy it. I want to believe in a God of love. But don't you see that a God of love is a God of anger? That a God of anger is a God of love. To not have a God who is angry about injustice is to not have a God who loves those who are recipients of that injustice. God of anger is a God of love. A God of love is a God of anger. And so God is after the hearts of the people of Israel so that they would extend his heart into the world, so that they would be agents of his shalom in the world, the complete flourishing socially, economically, relationally, spiritually, complete flourishing of all of humanity so that they would work for the orphan, the poor, and the marginalized. And where, and where, The people worship other gods, they will then work against God's shalom in the world. Every single time. You see, ancient gods, all ancient gods, they they accrued power from the poor and the marginalized and the fatherless and uh, those who are on the fringes. Only the God of Israel, only the God of Israel was there to work for the good of the poor and the marginalized on the fringes. And you will always become what you worship or to steal a tagline from a book that I'm pretty sure it was a James K. Smith book. You should read everything he writes, by the way. Uh, you will become what you behold. You will become what you behold. You behold and you worship the God who works for the poor and the marginalized. You will begin to work for the poor and the marginalized. You work for a God who accrues power from the poor and the marginalized, and you will begin to, did say work for a God, worship a God who accrues power. You will then work for and accrue power from the poor and the marginalized. This is how it always works. All right, you worship something other than God, and you'll work against God's shalom. So you worship sex, you worship love, you worship money, you worship friendship, you worship anything, and you will use people to get it. You will eventually exploit who you need to exploit in order to get it. And where the orphan, the widow, the sojourner is exploited, God's anger is, was, and will be kindled it will be a flame that is burning. So this exile it was no accident, it was the anger of God being kindled into a flame, the flame that was meant to destroy the idolatry and the injustice that had made its way into the people of Israel, which takes us to the purpose of anger. So God is angry, exile, God's judgments and where the opening of Psalm 79 is this honest look at the scene and the setting and what has happened. Uh, the next part of Psalm 79 is kind of this back and forth, this emotional back and forth where it's, uh, one commentator said this, this collapses all uh, regular rhythms of prayer. This back and forth of God work against our enemies and work for us. God fight against them and fight for us. And in their back and forth, we get a picture of why anger exists. Here it is, verse six. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. And the kingdoms do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his, his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. For we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins. For your name's sake. This is them saying, God, redirect your anger. Redirect your anger from us toward them. Redirect it off of us. We know that you are angry with us. Redirect your anger from us toward them. Let your anger that was for us be for them and become the means of our deliverance, become the means of our mercy. But did you hear what they asked in verse 9? Did you hear this? Deliver us and atone for our sins. What does the word atone mean? the English word atone that we use to communicate this idea it, it's a combination of two words. Do you see them? At one at one it's a combo at one atonement is at one. see and they're asking for him to atone for their sins it, it, it's a recognition that there is a togetherness that doesn't exist. there is a oneness that should be there that isn't, There, they are acknowledging that the relationship is like the parent to the child, the child who has done something that the parent is angry about for decades, and what was oneness has become two, and they need the two-ness to become oneness again. This is what they are acknowledging, but the scene is this, that what the child has done simply cannot be forgiven, simply cannot be forgotten, it simply cannot be ignored, When they say, remember our iniquity, no more, God is saying, but you worshiped other gods. You are the one who walked out of this relationship. You are the one who had the affair. You are the one who gave yourself to the houses of whores. It was you. You are the one who perpetrated injustice on the poor and the marginalized and the fatherless. You are the one who did not go and be agents of my shalom in the world. I cannot simply forget that. My anger over this has to be dealt with it simply will not disappear but I tell you what I will do I tell you what I will do not in your lifetime not in your lifetime but one day one day I will send my son into the world to go to a cross and be the object of my anger I will send my son to become the vulnerable one on the cross for you I will send my son to the cross where he will get what you deserve I will send my son into the fire I will send my son into the burning heat of my wrath for you, for you, for you, O Israel, the ones who have done this, I will send my son into the fire for you. And here's the thing, here's the thing, Jesus walked right into it, where you and I, would see the wrath of somebody and do anything we can to avoid it. Jesus, knowing what was about to be poured out on him on the cross, walked right into the fire. Walked into the fire. He, on that cross, became the object, the object of God's love in motion. So when they said, atone for our sins, and when they said, act for us and against our enemies, this happened not in their lifetime, but it happened in the death and resurrection of the Son. But it wasn't the enemy of Babylon, it was the Satan, sin, and death, all that works against God's shalom being in the world, destroyed on the cross, overcome in the resurrection. See, the purpose of anger is the redemption of God's people and the restoration of God's world. It exists to take what was one that sin made it to and to make it one again through Jesus' death and resurrection. So you and I, So that you and I can live what we're terming a crucified and a resurrected anger. And here's what I mean by that. Crucified and resurrected anger that you can be angry without it consuming you. You can be angry and not not just burn you alive and destroy you and destroy everything else around you. It means, let me say it this way, I, I bet, I bet, most, if not all of us in this room, we have something in our life or someone in our life that if we think about it long enough or think about them long enough, a spark becomes two, there comes a few twigs, and all of a sudden we've got a fire in our life. It might be that we were abused as children. It might be that we were abandoned by our parents. It might be that our spouse left us, it might not be a conversation we had 20 years ago that if we play it back in our minds, that we play it back a second and a third time, it just begins to boil and we lose it. What do we do with that? What do we do with our anger? What do we do with that stove that's just sitting there heating up underneath the ice chest? Well, step one. Step one is to be honest with yourself, to be honest with the Lord, and to be honest with other people around you people who both love you and love Jesus so they can remind you of the grace that you have in Christ and so that Jesus' gospel, Jesus walking into the fire and the flames of God's wrath and anger for you can be water on the flame of your anger. Step two is to recognize that it's gradual. Listen, I, I, I can... Uh, as I did, could run back to my stove, and I can see the knob turned to nine, and I can flip that knob and turn it off real fast. I can go nine to one on my stove, but in real life, with my anger, it doesn't work that way. We don't go nine to one overnight. We go nine to eight, eight to seven, seven to six, and maybe eventually one day, Lord willing, one. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual process, but it does not have to burn you down. It does not have to burn up every relationship in your life. You can live a life of healthy anger because the picture in the Bible is not no anger, and it's not explosive anger. It is slow to anger, and that slow to anger, crucified or resurrected at life, can be an anger in you that works for good. Works for good in your life, works for the good in others, and works for good in the world. You can be angry at the right Things you can be angry without being on fire. That a resurrected and a crucified anger is a patient anger. It is a wise anger. It is a thoughtful anger. It is an anger that knows who true vengeance belongs to. One of our pastors, Dodds, sent me this note. He said this: "said that anger that is overly personal, impatient, unwise, thoughtless, and or merciless is not crucified and resurrected anger. It's human anger." Godly anger sees sin, sees injustice as breaking God's law, not just ours. It is slow and patient, and it considers more than just right and wrong because it's wise. It's not solely an emotional response. See, that is crucified, resurrected anger. It is not merciless. It is not thoughtless. It is thoughtful and merciful. And when you are drawn into the heart of God, you can live this life. When the grace of God that you have in Christ is sunk deep into you and you realize That God is not boiling over your sin anymore when you realize that He is not raging in anger over you anymore. You can live a life of crucified and resurrected anger, and you can experience what it's like to be an agent of God's love in motion. You can be, listen to me, you can be angry and compelled by love at the same time. They don't have to be dichotomized. You can be angry and compelled by love at the same time. What does that look like? What does it look like to be someone who's angry at the right things, who's angry over it, and yet still compelled and motivated by love at the same time? I found this quote from uh, Martin Luther King. I actually found this in a sermon, quoting MLK in a sermon, prepping for this sermon. I found that equally as funny. This is what he said. This is Martin Luther King, Jr. We will not abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our strength, we will continue to rid the nation of the incubus of segregation. We will not in the process relinquish our privilege or obligation to love. While a boring segregation, we will love the segregationists. This is the only way to build the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. We cannot obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as it is to cooperate with good. But throw us in jail, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community and beat us, and we will still love you. This is what the gospel does. The gospel creates a people who can be angry and compelled and motivated by love at the same time. Why? How? Because it was love in motion, love set in motion that led Jesus to the cross where he would absorb the anger of God for you. And it was that cross and his resurrection that would create a people, create a people who could live and be agents of God's love in motion in the world. People who are angry over evil and sin in our own lives, angry over sin and evil in each other's lives, angry over injustice in the world, and people who want to, compelled by love, work to rid ourselves of sin, evil, and justice sitting inside our own hearts and then extend that out into the world. This is the kind of community that the gospel of Jesus creates. May it be us. Let's pray.